Hi, everyone. Before we get started today, just wanted to let you know that for the next month's worth of episodes, we have a special guest co-host sitting in for Morgan Rhodes, who is busy with some incredible music supervision projects. Both Morgan and I couldn't be more pleased to have arts and culture writer and critic Ernest Hardy sitting in for Morgan. And if you recall, Ernest joined us back in 2017 for a wonderful conversation about Sade's Love Deluxe, which you can find in your feed in case you want to re-familiarize yourself with Ernest's brilliance or you just want to listen to a great episode. Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Ernest Hardy sitting in for Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, you know, an album that's hot, hot, hot. And today, we will be taking a trip to Rydell High School to revisit the iconic soundtrack to the 1978 smash movie musical, Grease. I was in first grade the year that Grease came out in theaters, and I think one of the only memories I have about the entirety of first grade was when our teacher decided to put on the Grease soundtrack onto the class phonograph and play as Grease Lightning. We were just starting to cut a rug when the song arrived at the line, quote, you know that ain't no shit, we'll be getting lots of tit, unquote. The entire class froze, we looked at one another in a mild panic, and that vinyl left the platter faster than Greased, well... You know, it's easy to forget that Grease began life as a raunchy, subversive musical staged in the fictional Chicago High School of Rydell, an attempt in the early 1970s to use the American nostalgia for the 1950s as a way to comment on moral panics around teenage sex, drinking, and of course, rock and roll. If somehow you've never seen Grease, it centers on Danny Zuko, a kind of manic greaser dream boy, who eventually, and this is a spoiler alert here, convinces the prim and proper Sandra Dee to trade in her petticoats for some lipstick and leather. The 1978 hit film version, starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John in the lead roles, gave its source material a slightly sanitized makeover, and though it included most of the original Broadway songs, it also added several songs from the post-Woodstock rock and roll revivalist Shanana plus a new title track written by the Bee Gees Barry Gibb and performed by Four Seasons star Frankie Valli. Even four decades later, Grease has remained an enduring classic in American pop culture, especially as an inaugural low-key teenage sex comedy for my generation of 70s babies and perhaps beyond. Grease soundtrack was the album pick of our guest today, Luis Extravaganza. Most of us were introduced to Luis Extravaganza as one of the dancers on Madonna's iconic Blonde Ambition Tour. Luis and his fellow troopers became stars in their own right as they moved through choreography that was part voguing, part hip-hop, and part Broadway. Truth or Dare, the classic genre-redefining documentary of the tour, cemented the superstar status of the dancers who often did the unimaginable. They stole the spotlight from the diva. 
Some measure of Luis's cultural impact was outlined a few months ago when popular Twitter user at Granverones created a photo, film clip, music video, and Jeff Rich thread that tracked the careers and cultural significance of friends and collaborators Luis and Jose Extravaganza, mm. from their ball culture roots through their dance and recording careers to the present in which they've taken their place among the legends of ball culture. At Granverones wrote, quote, Jose and Luis broke the third wall during a time when queerness existed in code, beneath the surface. They provided a possibility for black and Latinx gay boys like me when both the crack and AIDS epidemics were snatching our lives, dreams, and future. Jose and Luis proved that one could get their tens by being unapologetically Dominican, Puerto Rican, and femme as Middle America watched. I still remember the hope they represented for me. They looked and sounded like the locusts my mother surrounded herself with. Mm. I'm happy to celebrate them while they are still blessing this earth with their energy and magic. Jose and Luis Extravaganza are still dancing and thriving and still providing this old queen with possibility and hope. End of quote. Luis, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. You're making me cry up in here. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so we are so hyped that you chose this particular album. <laughs> And I already shared my earliest memory of being introduced to Greece. What is your what was your introduction to Greece? Greece was one of I don't want to say the first albums my dad bought for me, but you mm. know, earlier on I used to go to the local record store and just buy forty fives. Remember those? Yes. Yes. So <laughs> it was just like singles. Right. Right, right. The first like album album that my dad just bought for me like as a gift was Grease. And this was the s film soundtrack, not the original Broadway cast album from earlier no, in the 70s. No, correct. It was the film soundtrack. And I even put my name over John Travolta's picture. And I think I put my <laughs> sister's <laughs> name over Olivia Newton-John because we used to dance together all the time. Yeah. So we would perform, like literally the whole album, we would just go through the movie and like perform the movie were you familiar with the songs first before the movie, or did you see them or, and listen to the album around the same time? Same time. Okay. Yeah. I was surprised he let me watch the film at such a young age, because I was barely, you know, legal at that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I actually didn't see the film until years later on VHS. Ah. Um, I was in junior high school when the film was released, and it was huge, and so... I knew all the music because radio stations played it in talent shows and just like you couldn't escape it. Right. But I actually didn't see the movie until years, years later. Yeah. Well, that's why I was surprised that uh, my father let me even see the film because I was so young. And then when I see it later, I was like, oh, this is kind of racy. Bun in the oven. Oh, I get what that is now. <laughs> <laughs> But I was going to say, I mean, the, the whole thing with Grease Lightning is they're talking about, you know, they're, they're swearing in it. They talk yep. about the car being a pussy wagon. They're talking about it'll make chicks cream. So it's not as even without the film, the content <laughs> of the songs itself were still a little bit out there, at least, least of all for the late 70s. Right. It, it, it was. And we were just singing along like, woohoo. <laughs> Ernest, I'm kind of curious for someone who knew the music first but didn't see the film later and 
these two things can, of course, exist in different spheres. But I'm wondering, when you actually finally saw the movie version of it, what had you built up in your mind about what it would look like based on being familiar with the songs? And did the image match the sound, if that makes sense? I think because the music was everywhere and, you know, and then, you know, television shows showing film clips and different parts of the movie. So I sort of pieced together um, what the movie was about. I have to be honest, I, I, I wasn't really that interested in seeing the movie when, when it was in the theater. Um, I was kind of exhausted by whiteness. <laughs> I was just going to say why, because there was a lot of white people. In yeah, and, and I'm from the South, and I was like one of two black kids in my class, and I'm just like, you know, I, the music is enough. Um, <laughs> but um, the movie pretty much lived up to what I built up in my head. I think what really blew me away was, and we, we can talk about this a little bit later, I, I think I was just in awe of the character Rizzo. Yeah. And that was who I really Stalker wanted to Stalker Channing. Sp- yeah. 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 That was who I really wanted to spend so much more time with. Yeah. And we, we will absolutely come back to Rizzo, who is, I think, really, really undersung within, especially the movie version of this. Perhaps she was a little bit more prominent in the original uh, Broadway staging of it. But we, we'll definitely come back to Rizzo. So, Luis, why is Grease your heat rock? There were a lot of albums for me growing up that really impacted my life in different ways. Grease really uh, shined a light on a really happy time Mm. in my life, kind of like a more innocent time in my life. And I was, I don't know, every time I think about it, I just think about me and my sister and we're dancing and singing along to these songs and watching the movie and how colorful and dance, you know, there was a lot of dancing in it. And that was, you know, that was me because I was an aspiring dancer and I didn't know at the time what I wanted to be, but I know I wanted it to look like what was happening on the screen at, you know, in Greece at, at Rydell high. Mm. I wanted to go to that high school. I wanted to have that leather jacket and then later on, I wanted to have the satin jacket. <laughs> and then I was like, well, why not both? It's a good look. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me about Greece is, and this is a, a, a film, I use different clips of it in my classes. So just to remind listeners, I, I teach, I'm a sociology professor at Long Beach State. And usually when it comes to anything that's older than even 10 years, I do, definitely do not presume my students are going to have a familiarity with it. But right. it always surprises me that whenever I ask students, before I, I show a clip, you know, how many of you have heard or, or seen this before? And it's it's always much more, I think certainly probably the last time I did was the majority of the class, which really took me back because I'm like, wow, I, I had no idea. Even though it makes sense to me in terms of Greece being an incredibly popular uh, film and soundtrack and all that. But nonetheless, it, it surprises me how much uh, of a younger generation have seen it. And it got me thinking about sort of the enduring appeal of it. And I guess the easy way to answer it would simply be it has very good songs. It has a fun, it's a fun film. Um, but there's a lot of good songs and fun films from the 1970s that don't get remembered by a generation or two generations later. And I'm wondering if either of you have a sense of why you think Greece has managed to endure. I think one of the reasons the film and its soundtrack still resonate so much is that they sort of straddle eras and music genres. Mm. Robert Stigwood, who managed the Bee Gees, was one of the film's producers. Right. And one place you can see his influence is the title track of the Grease soundtrack. It's very disco-flavored.
I think Stigwood wanted to sort of tap into the reigning, lucrative sound of the day as a sonic hook, but also to give the film the whole project a veneer of freshness and hipness. So when you listen closely to some of the music and lyrics on the soundtrack, a lot of them are kind of out of time, you know, beyond rigid categories of era or genre. If I can just piggyback on something you were saying earlier about your um, students, you know, you being surprised that they were familiar with this. One of the things, I mean, I was born in the mid-60s and so I was a child in the 70s. And the 70s were just so incredibly close to us um, at that time. I think timelines and, and eras were much more porous than they are now. Mm. You know, and so the 70s were all around us. You know, you had on TV, you had Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. Yeah. You'd had, um, you know, Sean and I had um, a variety show. Right. And so and and then on radio, which had a very different function in pop culture, you know, you heard songs from the 50s and 60s just like on regular playlists. Right. The oldest. Yeah, exactly. So I think there was a kind of instant familiarity um, because we sort of knew the aesthetics and we knew the sounds that were being referenced in the film. Yeah. And so like you, I'm, I'm a little surprised that, you know, people in their teens and 20s know Greece now because the way culture works the way it's transmitted is so incredibly different. And, and we're sort of encouraged to have a kind of cultural amnesia so that our, 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 our data bank doesn't go much further than a decade at most. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is a shame. But just the story of Greece is still relevant, right? I mean, high school kids today right. still go through the things that... Rizzo was going through or Marty would go through or even Sandy with her being an exchange student and being bullied a little bit and then, you know, having to, quote unquote, change her identity, then, you know, to fit in. And then finally she fits in because she looks like they, you know, they all do. So those kind of issues and topics still prevail in high school today. Perhaps a little even more intense. Yes, thank you. That's the word, like more intense today. I mean, it was a little bit more, you know, candy-coated back then. and But today it's a little bit more intense. But it's, uh, it's those same issues and same, you know, things that pe- that high school kids go to go through. Right. I think, to your point, the high school film as a genre right. is, a, is a distinctive genre. It, right. It's continually remade. Right. Every year there's going to be a multiple attempts at tapping into that. Yeah. And I didn't really thought about this till now. Even though I described... Greece uh, a moment ago as being kind of this low-key teen sex comedy, really, it's a. I totally forgot the more obvious analogy, which is it was my introduction to the high school film, yeah. which is something, especially now that I have a 14-year-old at home, she loves this stuff because for her, she's treating it as a kind of quasi-anthropological look <laughs> into like, this is the terrain I have to navigate and to master. But so she watches a lot of these things and now that i'm really thinking about it sitting in this room with y'all like i can take it back to greece as being okay this was sort of an introduction to me to what a high school environment might look like yeah. with the one really i think important exception here and this is something i also wanted to ask you you all about the thing that's so distinctive about greece in particular about when it comes out and and this goes exactly directly to your point ernest is that the 70s were very much suffused with this nostalgia for the 50s. You mentioned Happy Days. That's yes. an obvious point. Uh, 
American Graffiti, George Lucas's uh, uh, breakout film, uh, set also in the 1950s. And shot, the popularity of Sean Anna, who I didn't realize until recently, got their, their big break, as I mentioned in my intro, coming out of Woodstock because they were offering baby boomers that nostalgia for the era that they grew up in as kids. Mm-hmm. But I had no nostalgia for it because I hadn't been born yet. And to be quite honest, my parents, who were immigrants in the 60s, they couldn't have even come to the U.S. in the 1950s because of how immigration laws were. So it was for me, it was kind of an imagined nostalgia for something that I never could have experienced, not just because of when I was born, but also because of my my ethnic background. And I'm wondering for each of you, was any of the appeal of Greece, either musically or as a film, how much of it had to do, if anything, with that nostalgia of the 50s and the ways in which we have idealized that era um, continually throughout American pop culture? For me, it was the colorful, dancey way and sing-songy way that high school was. Mm. And then came the t-shirts with the rolled up sleeves, yeah. which I had to do at one, you know, at one <laughs> point. Or like, you know, the jeans with the rolled up cuffs and like the leather jacket. And that kind of fashion just brings up these images of just American, you know, that American. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so me being a little Latin boy right. growing up on the you know low east side of Manhattan, I'm like, ooh, the grass is gr- greener type of deal, right? Like I'm growing up in the projects, but look at this, this is fabulous. This is not where I, you know, this is not what I'm dealing with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be nice to drive a Thunderbird to high school one right. day? You know, right. <laughs> well, you know, for me, it, sort of building on what you were saying, Oliver, it, it speaks to the ways in which even nostalgia is racialized. Of course, because yeah. for me, I was very familiar in, with the the music of the '50s. You know, growing up. In the 70s, and my parents had been, you know, um, teenagers in the 50s. And so, you know, in our house, we were listening to the Platters. We were listening to the Drifters. We were listening to these groups from the 50s right alongside Shaka Khan and Earth, Wind & Fire. So my sister and I, you know, we grew up with this sort of very fluid notion of a timeline. And Mm. when it came to culture, it Mm -hmm. was all there. And the, the, the nostalgia that was put forth and sort of celebrated in Greece was just very different than... Um, the music that I grew up listening to as representing the 50s, as well as the conversations that my parents had about, you know, being black people growing up in the South in the 50s. Yeah. You know, mm. um, it, it wasn't a musical. Right. Hard <laughs> right. Well, that nostalgia for that. <laughs> right. right. So Surprise. It's, so, so it's a very different kind of nostalgia. Yeah. And even even the music of, you know, like the Drifters or the Platters or, or whoever, um, even though it's like pop and, and escapist or whatever, because of the memories that my parents had as t- attached to it and the ways in which we came to that music, um, that music had a sort of weight to it. Um, it, it, it wasn't necessarily bubblegum, even yeah. though it, it, it might have been pop music for its day. Right, right, you know? right. I mean, for me, my parents were, you know, coming from Puerto Rico. So we had a lot of Latin salsa merengue music in our household. Yeah. Um, as we got older, then we started getting introduced to, you know, more R&B groups. And so I'm really fortunate that my dad really liked, was a fan of music. So not only was I listening to the salsa and the merengue, he was introducing me to, you know, the R&B and the groups that you were just talking about. And... Greece was just another musical category that he was just introducing me to at such a young age because I was 
my mother called it vibrating. I was always dancing around in my home, whether music was on or not. And so they were like, well, just put music on. I mean, if he's going to dance around, yeah. put the music, you know, put music on. So he was always doing that for me. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the sex and gender politics of the movie, but also specifically I'm thinking about the songs Look at Me, I'm Sandra D," and There Are Worse Things I Can Do, which to me are like the sort of standout tracks. I couldn't stay home every night Wait around for Mr. Right Take cold showers every day And throw my life away On a dream that will come true One of the reasons that I love There Are Worse Things I Could Do which is, it's, it's Rizzo's character really sort of defiantly claiming her sexuality and her desires, but she's also really smart because she says she knows there's a high price to pay for being herself and yeah. for following you know, her, her own impulses. Um, but she also says that she would rather pay that price than be phony and conformist. You know, when she says, when the lines, I could throw my life away on a dream that won't come true. Here's someone who's already sort of peeped the game and, and knows that, if I stick to the conventional path and what is expected of me, I will not be happy. If I do what I want to do and follow my own desires, I will be called out of my name. I will be possibly exiled. And so, you know, at the end when she says, I don't steal and I don't lie, but I can feel and I can cry. A fact I'll bet you never But to cry There's such a savviness, and I think, you know, not to not to be essentialist or not to romanticize um, womanhood or femalehood or anything, but I I think it really speaks to the ways in which girls do mature faster and have to mature faster. Oh, absolutely. And are aware at a very young age of what it costs them as girls turning into women, what it costs them to move through the world. Right. You know. But I think that also speaks to a time where parents weren't really talking about you know, this kind of stuff to their daughters. I think parents today, and you can, I mean, Oliver, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, with a 14-year-old girl, I mean, you know, parents are more woke these days, right? So they want to... To some extent, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Not necessarily across the board, certainly, yeah. (laughs) yeah. Well, and so, I mean, there are always going to be some kind of, you know, issue that comes up or some question that comes up, but... You know, back in the quote unquote fifties, those those things weren't really talk, spoken about to young girls. Worth, right? Well, I, I think to some degree you're, you're right, but I also think one of the things that the film does is, you know, it shows that the 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 candy coated version of the fifties that we have been sold for much of you know post fifties American pop culture that that candy coated version was bullshit, right? Because right. The kids were fucking, right? Well, <laughs> right? Hello. and and 
and contemplating abortion if that was you know one of the outcomes of the fucking and so it's giving you this neon fast moving you know fun movie but it's also sort of letting you know that the complexity was already right. there which was always from my understanding and i've never seen the original broadway version of the stage but from my understanding of it that is what it was intended to do is to kind of speak to these things but be, being as i said earlier being very subversive about it which is hiding all of these issues beneath some really fun songs and right. really good dancing right and I want to come back to, to your point, and, and we we're talking early about about the importance of Rizzo. Is, I mean, really, the female characters in this in this film, or just in the story, I think are the most interesting. And, and as much visual time as we give to the T the Thunderbirds and to, to Zuko, you know, they get to wear the, the cool leather jackets. And of course, our idea of what cool is is, is part of the programming, right? right? But if you look at sort of the kind of internal tensions. And the relationships, I think the it's the women who are by far much more interesting. And Rizzo in particular, I think, is also by far the most interesting single character in oh, yeah. the entire storyline. Oh, absolutely. And just does not get yeah, does not get enough of that focus yeah. when really you could have do if you had remade Greece and made her the centerpiece, yeah. I think it would have been actually a far more fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I totally agree. Absolutely. She has so many layers to her you know she wants to be the cool chick and she, you know she's kind of like quasi you know the bully but you know come to find out that she really is just scared and she just wants to be loved and yes she makes these decisions because she wants to be a strong minded and strong-willed woman and she knows the outcomes of these decisions so she goes oh well fuck it <laughs> you know this, this is me <laughs> this is this is something that I was thinking about just doing research and watching clips from the films. It's so interesting to watch that movie and realize that most of the cast is closer to being eligible for ARP than being 18 years old. <laughs> Those were some hard living 18 year olds. <laughs> there's, there's a scene when one of the high school boys, you know, it's like one of the dance scenes and he like walks in front of the camera swigging from a bottle. And I'm like, that's somebody's grandfather. <laughs> you know so it's it's always been interesting to me to watch the film and just you know just see this huge suspension of disbelief right you know in, right. in terms of the casting right. is 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 asking a lot yeah but we can also say that now right guys you're looking at the film and clips now but right. back then when i was looking at the film i was like <gasps> oh I, i'm going to look like that when i'm in high school because i wasn't in high school yet so yeah, that, that belief was suspended, you know, for a little Lewis. Now, when Big Lewis is looking at it, I'm like, ooh, she look old. <laughs> That's an old girl. Luis, did you have a chance to check out Grease Live um, that came out in, I think, 2016 when NBC broadcast the live theater performance? Yes, I did not see that. I like my current picture of Greece, right? And yeah. my current memory of right. Greece. And I just don't want it altered. And if I see something else and it's just not to my liking, I just don't want it ruined. So I did not see it. I don't even know who was in it. I'm sure they were fantastic. I think for the same reason. I know a lot of people who loved Grease but never bothered with Grease 2 
because <gasps> starring a young oh. Michelle Pfeiffer, yes. amongst other folks. But now you have seen Grease too, it seems like. Oh my God. Oh, yes. Well, since we, we take it there, let's take it there. <laughs> Did you not walk out of the theater singing Cool Rider? I'm telling you. <laughs> oh God. What are they doing to me today? Okay. Yes. So if someone has not seen Grease too, you're you are vouching for it. I love I liked Grease too. But okay. then again, you know, I loved Grease so much that when Grease Two came out, uh when they do the song about the seasons, oh, I live. I can't. I live. Well, for I me, it's, it's, it's an incredibly bad movie that's a lot of fun. Oh, yes. Oh, well, <laughs> yes. And, and can, yes. And I'll let you know that, yes, I felt that it was not a good movie. It definitely was not on the level of Grease, but it was so much fun. And right, I just, right. I just loved it. And what was the, the, Oh, the lead ca- the lead male character, the blonde, blue-haired right. we guy. All, we all remember Michelle Pfeiffer, but <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't I forget his name, but he, the actor was Maxwell Caulfield. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, yeah. I'm yelling into this mic. Yes. <laughs> yes. And he was so dreamy. And then, like, he takes off his helmet and, you know, he's, like, there and he's all his blonde and blue-eyed. And so I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we will come back to more of our discussion about Greece, Greece one, that is, after a break <laughs> to listen from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Hi, this is Rachel McElroy. Hello, this is Griffin McElroy. And this is wonderful. It's a podcast that we do as uh, we, ma- we are married. And how's the ad going so far? Because I think it's going very good. <laughs> we talk about things we like every week on Wednesdays. One time Rachel talked about pumpernickel bread. It was so tight. You cannot afford to miss her talking about this sweet brown bread. We also talk about music and poems and, you know, weather. There was one... Weather? <laughs> one time Rachel talked about Baby Beluga, this song, for like 14 minutes. And it just really blew my hair back. <laughs> so check us out on MaximumFun.org. It's a cool podcast with chill vibes. Amber is the color of our energy, is what all the iTunes reviews say. (laughs) They will now. Hey, if you like your podcast to be focused and well-researched and your podcast host to be uncharismatic, unhorny strangers who have no interest in horses, then this is not the podcast for you. Yeah, and what's your deal? (laughs) I'm Emily. I'm Lisa. Our show's called Baby Geniuses. And its hosts are horny adult idiots. We discover weird Wikipedia pages every episode. We discuss institutional misogyny. We ask each other the dumbest questions, and our listeners won't stop sending us pictures of their butts. We haven't asked them to stop, but they also aren't stopping. Join us on Baby Geniuses every other week on MaximumFun.org. We're back on Heat Rocks talking Greece with Luis Extravaganza. So I wanted to ask each of you, what was your favorite song from the soundtrack, independent of how it was used in the movies? In other words, we're talking about just the musical part of it as a song. What is the one that has been enduring for each of you? What, what, what is the fire track off of the soundtrack for each of you? Well, you, you have to go first. Cause I'm, <laughs> I am, uh, they have this, the song list out for me. So I'm going through all of them and I'm like, oh, that one. Oh, wait, no, 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 that one. No, 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 that one, that one, no. So well, I think I've already given mine away. For me, it definitely is. Um, there are worse things I could do. Yeah. And 
Um, Alison Moyet actually did a, a fantastic cover on her 1994 album Essex. And then mm. two years later, she released an album called Singles Live, which was her in concert um, performing her um, hit singles. And she did a live version of it as well, which just really knocks it out of the park. And it's such a fantastic, for me, it just really underscores how solid that song is. Yeah. I could flirt with all the guys. Smile at them and bat my eye. Press against them. For me, I would probably go with Hopelessly Devoted to You, uh, which to me is a great showcase for Olivia Newton-John's vocal talents, um, and certainly could have been and was a pop hit that if you had just released that song independent of the movie, it still, I think, would have done just as well. Um, obviously, I think it got a boost from from the success of the movie, but you kind of remember, like, Olivia Newton-John was a real, was great. Like, she was a great pop star mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. back in that era, and, and I think she just, yeah, she does a lovely job uh, with that. What's interesting to me about Hopelessly Devoted to You is that in terms of lyric, production, and instrumentation, it is absolutely in line with the country pop songs she was making at the start of her career. Totally. And that made her such a huge global pop star. Songs like If You Love Me, Let Me Know, and most obviously, I Honestly Love You. Yeah, we both were born in another place and time. This moment might be In many ways, she was a, a prototype of the way Taylor Swift has rebranded herself. Wow, yes. I never thought about that. Yeah. yeah, Olivia was very shrewd in using Grease as an image makeover. Mm. Her performance of Sandy... Just like Sandy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We're getting deep in here right now. <laughs> okay. Her performance of Sandy at the start of the film is very much her performing her public persona up to that point. And the transformed Sandy was a bridge to a much more sexy, overtly sexual version of mm. Olivia Newton-John. Mm-hmm. On the cover of Totally Hot which was released six or seven months after the Grease soundtrack, she's even wearing black leather pants similar to those worn by Sandy post-transformation. And I don't think a lot of people can now grasp what a huge shakeup that was um, in terms of both her image and her subsequent music because she'd been a huge global pop star with like this, this sort of... I mean, it was good. It was very good music, but it was like safe and right. chaste and virginal. And you know, her album covers are her in white and yeah. the wind blowing her hair and... I never thought about that, but that is, yeah, that's brilliant in that sense. Because, and she also does a Xanadu a couple of years after that, right, which is also right. much more of that post-transformation look. Exactly, exactly. She did physical, right? Yeah, yeah. she did yeah. physical. Right, which you know, by the early 80s, which is very much more sexualized, yeah. It's funny, too, because I think Sandy's transformation, to me, always felt a little bit problematic, only because it's, she's, she's based, it feels like, to some extent, she's conforming to what it is that Danny wants her to be like, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little bit Little Mermaid in that sense, I suppose. The Disney version, not the original Hans Christian Andersen. 
But when I think about it in terms of this was actually a, a way for Olivia Newton-John to sort of transform her and make it feel organic. So from, from the listener's point of view, it doesn't seem strange for her to go from this to that. But using Greece as that transition as part of her own ambition, suddenly actually I'm, I'm much more cool with sort of Sandy's narrative within the, the logic of, of the story itself. Yeah. My heart is saying, don't let go. What I intend to do I'm hopelessly devoted to you. Hopelessly devoted to you was always the one that everybody sang mm-hmm. <laughs> together because mm-hmm. it has this crescendo. Yeah. Everybody like joins in. Yeah. But uh stranded at the drive-in, branded a fool, what will they say Monday at school? Ooh. <laughs> with John Travolta Sandy oh Sandy baby oh I love that torch song that he is proclaiming mm-hmm. that I'm really not like these other guys right? right I really do like you I'm I'm not I'm, I'm not the asshole yes. yes I'm not the asshole but I am conflicted because I gotta stay cool right but I really like you though <laughs> can't you see and then you know the the dancey Latin you know Guy in me just loves hand jive. When that beat comes in on hand jive, all I want to do is shake it to the rhythm, honey. And this also, you know, when we get the other favorite character. Let's go in. Can I guess? <laughs> you can Trust guess. Her. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, the yes. Be- the best dancer, right? Oh, I live. Although I, I have to, when, when the first time I saw the film, going back to what I was saying about how everyone is looking older, the first time I saw the film, I'm like, is that like a teacher dancing? I live. Miss <laughs> Chacha Tuscadero, the best dancer from St. Bernadette's. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and her dress was fierce too. She was. Oh goodness yeah, gracious! Yeah, yeah, and she brought that next level of like grit. You know that right. girl that was definitely more on Rizzo's side of the street. Right, you know, right, right. I think she was. You know, she's that character. Like Rizzo was jealous, but you know, because Rizzo wanted to be her in some way, right? Because she was full. Yeah fully realized in her in her you know persona like she was like this is me boom get it and uh let's get this on and dancing and like hello (laughs) i was like there she is there's my queen there it is What is your favorite musical moment in the movie? And I'll start, which is it's Summer Nights. And I think as a kid, part of it was, and Louis, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this because in listening to this song again now, and and Summer Nights was always my favorite song growing up, and I couldn't really figure out what it was that was so appealing until I tried to unpack it this past week. But I realized because it opens with that really classic one four five chord progression, which as someone who listens me personally to a lot of Latin boogaloo music out of New York mm-hmm. in the nineteen sixties, 
that is all 145 chord stuff. Louis Louis 145, a lot of Beatles stuff because it was all the influence of Afro-Cuban music. And I think something about it um, on a musical level is just appealing to me. I think the adult sociology professor in me, what I like about Summer Nights too, is it's a really great example of how, uh, and I, I apologize for getting overly academic here perhaps, but the, the, the differences between what the girls want to know and yes. what the boys want to know is Thank all you. about normative femininity and masculinity yes. that is being performed for you both <laughs> literally and figuratively. Yes. Like, tell me more, tell me more. Like, does he have a car? Right. Hello? <laughs> right. Did you get very... And, and the boys are asking, tell me more, tell me more. Did you get very far? I'm just getting chills. I just love that scene <laughs> love so much. I love it. So what's your favorite? I love it. Um, okay, so again, the dancer in me and, you know, I love the the gym scene when everybody, you know, starts dancing and it all yeah. goes into pandemonium and you see all these couples doing all kinds of... The choreography different... is amazing. Oh, yeah, my yeah. God. The choreography I, is off I was, the chain. I, was, I mean, lost. Lost in that scene. I was like, oh, my God, that... I I I I uh, 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 how, yeah. how can I I, <laughs> I I want all of that all those couples and they're doing this and it was just amazing and flipping each other I mean the choreography I just I I wanted that so bad in my life I agree that with you scene. that's my favorite like music moment in the film as well because the dancing finally you know I mean they're dancing throughout the film but that's really dancing. And in a way, it's also a throwback to classic Hollywood musicals where, you know, the way in which the camera moves and the, the choreography, right, right. the way it's staged and the, everything is composed, it's so intricate. And it, the camera has to move very, you know, carefully and very yes. fluidly in order to capture all that is happening. And that scene is just like really the, you know, in terms of the music performances, that really is the best scene. Yes, when that track goes into that, drum breakdown yes and they're just showing the different couples and the heat and the vibrations that are coming off those couples that it's almost like they lose it They break out of their 50s, you know, sweet girl, sweet boy normality, and they become these, like, dance animals. And, you know, there's one point where, you know, the guy, the girl slapping, you know, making like he's slapping the guy, and right. one is going on the knee for a skirt, and I mean, it just becomes this, you know, like, sexually charged pandemonium, and I just, I don't know, I, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I was like, yes! <laughs> which is, which was, of course... Right, the big fear around race music, period. Yes, right? Yes. right, that it would turn these sweet young, you know, white kids into these primal, Le- libidinous, <laughs> you know, right, right, exactly, right, right, right. Which is why you have all of the older teachers and the administrators going around enforcing, you know, how kids are touching each other. You which, must be six inches apart exactly. when you're dancing. Right, right, right. right. After a while, they just give up, right? Because <laughs> it's just, I mean, that breakdown comes in, and it's just like, girl, don't try, don't try to break us up because we're about to get this on and popping. Yes. We somehow managed not to talk much at all about the actual title track, which is one of the 
new songs that was introduced. And so just for people not familiar with this, the original Broadway staging of Greece, um, the Frankie Valley song that opens the movie, that was not part of the original um, songs uh, with the stage version of this. But when they brought it to screen, uh, Barry Gibb, as we talked about from the Bee Gees, was asked to write um, a, a, a title track for it. And then they got Frankie Valley, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons to, to sing it. And you were mentioning this earlier, uh, Ernest, that Greece was the title track was designed to very much ride on the height of the disco wave. Yeah. Even though I don't really think of Greece as being a super disco-y song, but the elements are certainly oh, there. Yeah. Right, right. I, I still am ambivalent as to do I like the song? I think I like it because I associate it with that cartoon opening with Greece, which was yes. always fun as a kid because yes. it's colorful and all these things. You don't really yes. know what you're getting yourself into with it. Correct. And it's catchy. But I think for some reason, and this is no shade on Frankie Valley at all, if the Bee Gees had actually sung it, especially in that falsetto, <laughs> I think I would have loved this far more than how it is. And again, it's not because I think it's bad, but for whatever reason, I just really wanted to hear the Bee Gees actually do the song and not just sing backup. Listening to it again right now, it's so incongruous with the rest of the movie and the era it's supposed to be depicting. Well, you know, it's 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 interesting because although the lyrics can apply to these high school students, they're also very much in the vein of the, the ethos of of disco, which was mm-hmm. about self affirmation. You know, he says we can be who we are. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, that was the whole premise of disco, right? The, the it would be this liberating force. And so, you know, I, I agree with you. If we'd heard the Bee Gees sing this. I mean, you, you can hear it in your head Absolutely. as you're listening to it. I you actually forget it. what the Valley version sounds like until I listen to it because mm-hmm. in my head, I hear the I hear the Bee Gees falsetto every time <laughs> I think about the song. Yeah. You know, for me, it kind of straddles this rock disco thing because in the beginning, you know, those electric t- guitars don't sound disco to me. And, mm-hmm. and this song doesn't sound like the rest Not of the album. Not at all. At all. So I like, you know, again, I like this song. I always like this song, especially because it had that cartoon opening, which I loved so much. Yeah. But I was always like, hmm, that doesn't sound like the rest of the song. Right. <laughs> I just mentioned the song that it opens with, but we should also talk about perhaps the song that it ends with, which is that we go together. And it, it took me a while to figure this out because every time I heard it, especially the chorus part, I'm like, why does this sound so familiar? And I finally figured it out. The chord progression of the of the, the vocal chorus, whether it's coincidence or not, and I don't know if it's a coincidence, but it's, it's identical to the Tide is High, originally by Jamaica's Paragons and then covered by Blondie, of course, two years later, 1980. I wish you guys who are listening to the podcast could see Lewis getting his life <laughs> dancing in the chair. <laughs> and Oliver too. We're gonna make this we're gonna take this oh, on the road. Fun. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm telling you. I mean, this is such a feel good song. I love the 
I mean, I just, I just love the rhythm of it. I just love that they're not really words, you know, <laughs> and that a child like me was like, I know that word, you know, it's so good. I love the feel good aspect of it. I love the message that, you know, we go, we go together. You are my brother, right? Mm-hmm. And mm. Whatever happened during the school year, whether we were fighting or not friends, at the end of all of this, you know, we go together. And another really good choreographed scene in the film, too. Absolutely. And I just, again, for me as a kid growing up and wanting to be, you know, or dreaming to be a dancer or whatever, or a performer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these kinds of scenes and, you know, and music just really, I just loved, I just loved it. I loved it. Luis, if you had to describe the Grease soundtrack in three words, what would those three words be? It would be cool, Mm. fun, and it would be musical. On point. Yes, yes. For folks who really enjoyed the Grease soundtrack, whether you've heard it a thousand times or maybe this is your introduction to it, if people have recommendations for other things that they should check out as the next listen, what would those be? Ernest, you want to start us off? Yeah, I am going to go with any Sorrell's Greatest Hits collection. Oh, that's great. Um, because I think as time goes by, they're an increasingly underrated, undervalued girl group. Yeah. Um, and I think with cuts like Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow?, um, which is one of the all-time great, if we fuck, are we still going to, you know, what happens then? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Tonight's the Night, dedicated to the one I love, Mama Said, Baby. I mean, I could just go on and on. I grew yes. up with these songs. And I know that, you know, the Shirelles, it falls a little bit outside the timeline of the movie. But since the movie is so loose with right. the, the era accuracy. Yeah, yeah to say the least. <laughs> right. So, so I'm going to stick with that. But I think um, sort of immersing... Um, and the music of the Sorrells would be really great. Well, I don't know. I said, I don't know right now. I might love you so. I might love you so much. You may break my If it's not too self-serving for me to say, my recommendation would be to have listeners go listen to our Dream Girls soundtrack episode, which came out in February with uh, guest Travel Anderson. And I think in a lot of ways, we try to unpack Dream Girls both for all, in, in very similar ways that we have discussed here today with Greece. If people enjoyed today's episode, I would really recommend check out our, our Dream Girls episode. Luis, take us home. What do, you, what do you think people should listen to after Greece? Oh, my God. Uh, God, a couple of things. I mean, have you guys done Purple Rain yet? We have. Woo, right? <laughs> You've done Sade. Have you done Lauren Hill? Oh we have. God. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Oh my goodness, I gotta start <laughs> listening to your podcast. Sure. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm disappointed, Luis. I I was sure you're gonna say Greece too. Greece. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do Saturday Night Fever? That's a good one too. Oof. No. Saturday Night Fever. Right, that'll do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Luis Extravaganza. It's been so great having you here. It's been an honor. Um, what are you working on now and where can people find you? Uh, well, I have my own podcast. It's called Work Podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, Ernest has been a guest on it as well. So uh, check us out. We're on iTunes. It's work, W-E-R-Q-U-E, podcast.com. What's it about? I mean, our tagline is voices for the voices that go unheard. So we're really speaking to anybody who has an interesting story mm. that has contributed to just in any way to their to the culture, to their life. We want to speak to people who have interesting uh, stories to tell and who can, you know, inspire others. Yeah, they've done a lot of really great work around ball culture and yes. just like sort of yeah. fleshing it out because the ball culture is one of the major tributaries of yes. pop culture right now. But it's so, as it, as it has made its way into the mainstream, it's become so watered down and misunderstood and, and, and lost a lot. And um, one of the things that the podcast does is just like really sort of get, you know, get back to who was at the root of this um, culture and, and what were some of the goals and intentions and dreams that sort of um, spurred it on. So it's, it's really worth checking out. Yeah, and we speak to a lot of the people of that time mm-hmm. now. What are they doing now, you know, and their life story and their life path since th- that time. And back to you, Luis, where can people find more info about you and your podcast online? Uh www.workpodcast.com I also have a monthly dance class which is a Vogue workshop Mm. and you can go to www.workdanceclass.com and come dance with me I do a two hour work uh, Vogue dance class uh, that's awesome that's open to all levels and we have a whole bunch of fun and it's about you know getting in there and expressing yourself and sweating it out Thank you so much again for coming to us. It's great. Been, yeah, it's been an honor. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and our guest co-host, Ernest Hardy, sitting in for Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Morgan, and Christian Duenas, who also engineers, edits, and books for the show. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family team every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, just 13 miles away from Venice High School, which served as Rydell High in the movie. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and more goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. As we ask every week, if you haven't had a chance to leave a review for us on iTunes, it is a big, big way in which new listeners can find their way to our humble little show. So if you can just take out a minute and leave us a review, please do so. 
Ernest, thanks so much for joining us. It's been fun. I'm really happy to be here trying to fill those pricey stilettos of Miss Rhodes. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing. Here's a teaser for next week's episode featuring poet and artist Gabrielle Seville talking to myself and Ernest Hardy about Prince's 1986 album and soundtrack, Parade. Now, I immediately listened to this record and it was so like melancholy and emotional and romantic and really different than what I remember Around the World in the Day being. Mm. And me liking it, but being a little afraid of songs like um, Sometimes It Snows in April because it was like, what does it mean to be so sad? What does it mean to say that you're sad and to be emotionally vulnerable in that way? You know, as a as a prepubescent girl, you you're attracted to that. You want to be able to do that, but that's also really terrifying. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.